you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, like I said, call it what you will. <laughs> call it what you will. We are still in Ephesians. We're still in Ephesians as we continue through this kind of next sub-series, if you will. Uh, we're going to uh, be in this kind of this next section for a handful of weeks as we continue to work through Ephesians, but as we take some time to think about the church um, and what this passage says to us concerning the church, um, and particularly Renovation Church. So I want to set it up like this, and I'm going to give some, even some interpretive notes and intentions and stuff as we go, um, but I want to set it up like this. In, in our Western church culture, we often have people, I believe, in two distinct categories, right? Two distinct categories. This is just an observational exercise that I did this past week. Two distinct categories. One is those who go about doing lots of religious-looking things, but without any biblical foundation or warrant for. So those who go about doing lots of religious-looking things, but without any biblical foundation or warrant for. Let me give you some examples. They go to church. Alright, well what's your biblical warrant for that? What does the Bible say about going to church? I would encourage you that it says nothing about going to church. It actually says something about being the church. So just as a quick example. Another example. Maybe the religious activity of caring for your neighbor's grass, cutting their grass because they're unable to. Why would you do that? What's the biblical foundation for that? What scripture is informing your religious activity? Another example, voting against the funding or even the allowance and the law allowance for abortion. Why? Just because you don't like it? Because it grosses you out? Biblically, what's the motivation for such things? Is it just the latest social justice issue to jump on board for? Because you, you see even in that particular, this is not in my notes, but you see particularly in that issue how many people, you know, it was real hot, you know, 12 weeks ago, 10 weeks ago, and everyone just jumps on board, and then what you see is all the convictionless people, all the people without any biblical warrant for their abhorrence of this have fallen off the bandwagon. Maybe you're one of those. How about putting your children in Christian schools, homeschooling them, or sending them to public school? Biblical foundation, warrant. What is guiding these? What principles are guiding these decisions? And, I, and when I'm giving these things, I'm thinking about these examples, like, like I want to know specifically, 
Like not just, oh, well, you know, I think the Bible like kind of, you know, no, like specifically. Where, what, how, why, where does it say it at? Maybe not explicitly, but where is it at? So people sing praise songs instead of hymns in churches. Why? It's a biblical warrant for that. For us as a church, we do in-home small groups instead of classic Sunday school. If you don't know what Sunday school is, uh, that's okay. The church is classically, at least in our culture, and they gather for service on Sunday mornings. They would also tag along with that a time of discipleship and instruction. Nothing wrong with it. Just what's the biblical foundation for it? How about this? You don't cuss or drink. Alcohol. I mean, I'm sure you drink, but maybe not alcohol. Why? Why not drink delicious alcohol? What's the, why not cuss? I, I'm sure many of you have never thought through a biblical theology of cussing. What does the Bible have to say about cussing? What makes the S word a bad word to say? Or does it? So what ends up happening, okay, is we end up having lots of religious looking things going on that are often, sometimes even entirely wrong, even though they look good and religious and they look like tradition and these kinds of things, but a lot of times they're just wrong, flat out wrong. And then other times we're doing the right things, but at best done with the wrong reasons. Well, that's just what I grew up doing. That's a wrong reason. It's not a, like a bad reason, but it shouldn't be the driving reason. It can be a valuable reason. But is that the driving reason? Is that what's informing it? All right, so category one, I'm not going to spend as much time on category two, but those who have lots of biblical knowledge, but don't actually do anything with it. Like it doesn't actually inform what they do. So you have lots, so you have this category doing lots of religious things with very little biblical warrant for it. This category, the second category, those with lots of apparent biblical knowledge but don't actually do anything with it. Now obviously these are two extremes I'm painting here, but in this other category, this latter category, they know that the Bible says about sharing the good news about Jesus as Savior and Lord, but they don't actually do anything with it. They know that Jesus is our only hope, and yet each day they search for hope in their control, or in their own efforts, or in something that the world can give. In both categories, the gospel of Jesus is simply not being proclaimed. I think in both those categories, it's a gospel of self. It's a gospel that glorifies ourselves. Let me give you an example of why. I don't need the scriptures. I can figure out what's best on my own. Lots of TV preachers do this. I know what's best. I can figure it out on my own. I don't need the scriptures. They kind of get it in the way. Or in the second category, I know the scriptures, but I, I won't connect the dots 
to my life because that would mean I have to do something with it. That means something would have to change, and I kind of like the way things are. Both of these are places are dangerous as they proclaim ultimately a false gospel to yourself, to your family, to your church, and to the world. Now, I want to say this. All of us, myself included, struggle all the time with this. There are days when you know that the Scriptures say, but we're too lazy or it's too inconvenient to apply it. And there are days when we do, do, do all this religious and good things, but we have no, scriptural inf- no Scripture informing our activity. So how can we rest with any kind of certainty that what we're doing is godly and honoring and glorifying? I mean, have you, have you ever thought through a biblical theology of tipping? What does the Bible have to say? How how should the Bible inform how we tip a waiter or a waitress? Just another example. But you see, here's the deal. It doesn't have to be this way. We will indeed struggle with this for the rest of our fleshly lives. But struggle we must. Struggle we must. We must struggle to overcome this. I mean, the goal, right, and this will happen, is the complete eradication of this contradiction in our lives. And this will, by God's grace, be accomplished. We will know the truth, and, it's in, and we will live in light of the truth perfectly someday. But until that day, we seek to take captive every thought, every example, every aspect of our lives and bring it into obedience to Christ. And this is our vision as a church. We have a very lofty vision. I believe it's God's vision. I think if we're not about this kind of thing, at least the very first part of this, and the heart of what our vision is as a church, then I don't think we should even call ourselves a church if this is not what we're about. And that is this. We want to see the gospel renovate everything. We want to see the gospel renovate absolutely everything. If a church is not about that, then they're just not a church. Period. I don't care what denomination they are. And the moment we cease being about that is the moment we stop being a church. We become a social club. But our vision goes on. See the gospel renovate everything. Ourselves, our families, our church, our city, and our world. That God would change all of these things through the power of the gospel. And that He'd use us in large part to do it. And then how do we believe is a helpful way to think about doing that? A helpful way to think about the biblical way in which God is bringing about renovation around this world is that we want to see this happen by God's people living out their gospel identity in their everyday rhythms. Now that's language that we use as a church. Gospel identity, everyday rhythms, that's kind of something we kind of trumpet. Other churches say it different ways, but we're all talking about the same thing. We're talking about the gospel taking grip of someone's heart, 
to the point where who they are in Jesus is impacting every single thing they do all day long, every day. That's the gospel renovating everything. And when the gospel is doing that in our lives, it will begin to take fruit or take root and show fruit in every aspect of our lives and the environments in which we find ourselves each and every day. So with that said, each year we like to take some time to think through basically our, our vision. Like, what are we about as a church? Everything we do being about this thing. And so this year for the next few weeks what I want to do is to take Ephesians 7, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 and show how it shines light on our vision as a church. To see the gospel renovate everything. I want to show you in demonstration how our doctrine should inform everything we do, which is really at the heart of our vision. Really our vision is that, that, that God's heart would impact everything we do. That the gospel of Jesus Christ would impact everything we do. From the moment we get up, and even including the moments that we're resting in bed. God's Word informs being, and being informs doing. Okay? We said again, God's Word informs being, and being informs doing. God's Word tells us who we are in Christ, and who we are in Christ tells us how we should be living. Who we are in Christ, I would argue, is going to dictate how we live. So just think now about the gospel that this preaches. As your life is living out the identity that you have in Jesus, think about the gospel that that preaches. That preaches the real gospel. So here, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. This is where we'll be for the next six weeks. It says this, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Father, as we think about today that you've chosen, that you in your grace and mercy have chosen to display your wisdom to the universe, all realms included. Your wisdom through us. What a profound thing. 
Now let us try to taste some of that this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. The first thing that this informs us of is that we are ministers of this gospel. We are ministers of this gospel. You might say, well, Paul is saying here that he's a minister of this gospel. No, that's the point of of Ephesians, is that we're ministers of this gospel. That we are proclaimers, that we are servants, that we are givers, that we are announcers of this gospel. That we are people who seek to apply this gospel. That we are people who proclaim and bring to bear on this entire life the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll just admit, for many years of my life and following Jesus, if you'd have told me that, I would have said, what do you mean? How does the gospel speak to all of life? That's a fair question. We'll get to it in a bit. Chapter 3, verse 7, and verse 7 is the only verse we're going to work through today. I want to begin in verse 7. It says this, of this gospel. Right there. Of this gospel. Paul was made a minister. And we too are ministers as Paul was. Not in an apostolic sense. But ministers of this gospel. This is one of Paul's overarching themes in Ephesians. That you likewise be proclaimers of the gospel. That you likewise be ministers of the gospel. If you are not ministering with the gospel, then you're not ministering. Okay? Not in the sense that Paul's talking about here. So in our vision statement, it says, to see the gospel renovate everything. What that implies is our active role in being ministers of the gospel. When we say that our desire is to see the gospel renovate everything, what we don't mean is we simply, we simply sit back and watch. Right? Although there's a good bit of watching because God does lots of things beyond us. But later in the vision, we talk about how this will happen. That God's people will connect orthodoxy to orthopraxy. Here's a side note. If you don't know what those words mean, write them down because I'm about to define them. Or connecting orthodoxy to orthopraxy. What does he mean? What do I mean? That the doctrine to how we live... informs, defines, I'm sorry, let me back up. The doctrine that we believe informs and defines how we live. This gospel we believe informs our identity and informs our rhythms. So our orthodoxy, our doctrine, what we believe, and our orthopraxy, what we practice, what we do, And Paul says he was a minister of this gospel. You know, this gospel information leads to gospel transformation. Gospel information leads to gospel transformation. What I mean this is, is to simply mentally know the gospel means nothing. But to really know the gospel changes everything. That's what we see going on with Paul. This is what Rusty part in part what Rusty talked about last week in the first part of chapter 3. Is that certain revelation brings certain commission. 
Certain revelation brings certain commission. And I want to say certain in both senses of this phrase. It brings upon a certain, a specific commission, but it also certainly brings about commission. Does that make sense? Two ways. This gospel, this certain revelation, this good news of Jesus Christ necessitates and will necessarily result in doing something with it. And it will result in doing something specific with it. You see, the mystery was made known to Paul. And this mystery changed Paul. As a result, he had the responsibility to make it known to others. To be a minister of it. As Rusty reminded us last week, every believer is a steward of the calling, gifts, opportunities, skills, knowledge, resources, in a way that honors the one who gave them to us. This is our responsibility, this is our call. We manage it all on behalf of the one who gave it all. As Rusty referenced last week, 1 Peter 4, verse 10 through 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Right? Good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's, what's Peter talking about here? We've received this gifts. We've received this information. We've received this gospel. And now we have a responsibility to do something with it. We have a responsibility to steward it. And lest I sound too like law and demanding, we get to do something with it. We, first of all, have it, and then we get to do something with it. That's crazy that we wouldn't. Now here's what I want to Say for just a moment. Some of us just be encouraged. Continue persevering in seeing the gospel renovate everything. You're trying to do that daily, each and every day. Do that. Push harder. Depend harder. Keep. And then some of us need encouragement to actually put effort into this. Be encouraged to do it. It's God's honor and His glory and your joy all impacted by this. I really think the key in this trying to think through how do I alright I need I've got this gospel I've got to do something with I've got this gospel I've got to do something. Paul's made a minister of this gospel. I really think that's part of the key in us thinking through how does, how does the gospel then go to renovate everything and I think that's where Paul here says It's this gospel that we are ministers of. It's this gospel. You're going to see Paul, both in Ephesians, that's what he's been doing, but particularly in other books like Galatians, where he is fighting for this gospel. He is fighting for a particular gospel. It's not my gospel. It's not the world's gospel. It's not the good news of the prince of the powers of the air. It's a very specific gospel. It's a very narrow gospel. Most of you heard the term gospel for many years of your life. 
And yet so much of our life is spent proclaiming a false gospel to ourselves and a false gospel to the people around us, both in word and deed. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? If you did renovate us this week, which I hope you did, I told you to spend time in chapter 1 and proclaim the gospel just from Ephesians chapter 1. And what I wanted to do for just a brief moment here is, what is the gospel? And I want to go to just Ephesians. And, I'm not, and I told you in, in um, Renovate Us, don't do it from Ephesians 2, because that's easy. Do it from Ephesians 1. It's a little harder. You have to think a little bit harder. What is the gospel from Ephesians 1? Very briefly here. Look at verses 1. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 3, just the very beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What's Paul doing? Paul is proclaiming here the blessedness of God. I think there's implications and things that are unspoken at this point, but he is certainly the Holy One and the one worthy of worship. That's what Paul is describing here. The one who is worthy of worship. The only one who can be worthy of worship is the Holy One. God is this blessed one who has done these things. Look at verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. What is this? What is this telling us? This is telling us that God is holy, right? That He is holy and that He is blameless. What is this also telling us? This is telling us that man is lacking holiness. That man is lacking blamelessness. Right? That we should be holy. What's that saying? That we're not. That we should be blameless. But we're not. The beginning of verse 4 says, even as He chose us in Him. What is that teaching us? This is implying that man is helpless. That man cannot choose. That God has to choose. But what does this also teach us? It teaches us that, that God is gracious, that God is merciful, that He would still save some, and that He would save, save them so thoroughly that they would become holy and blameless. Okay, that's cool. But what happens? Okay, what is the gospel? God is holy, we're not. God has chosen to save some, to make them holy and blameless before Him. How does He do that? Verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. God makes a way to be both merciful and just as we receive salvation. What do we see here? That Jesus takes our justice through His blood. And we get God's mercy, the forgiveness of our sins by the covering of this blood. Do you see it? Do you see it just right here in just, just five verses? Just five verses. And you see the Gospels just written all over those five verses. And some of you thought you had to go to Romans Road to proclaim the Gospel. Just giving you, just kidding. Look, it's right there. It's right there. We get God's mercy 
Jesus takes our justice. God is still holy. And we get forgiveness. This is the gospel. And we see in Jesus' life, I'm not going to go back and reference this. You go back and read the gospels. Jesus came and exclusively preached the good news of himself. He came and preached the good news of himself. What I mean by this is not every time he spoke, he laid out the very particular points of the gospel. What I'm saying is that his very actions, the way he thought about food, the way he thought about work, the way he thought about rest, the way he thought about recreation, the way he thought about blessing, all of these things communicated the gospel. Certainly Jesus spoke explicitly the gospel. What I'm saying is that that gospel came to bear on every part of his life. Our problem is that we want to proclaim a different gospel. So Paul says, this gospel. Our problem is that we want to proclaim our own gospel. We think, maybe they've got this particular area of my life, if I can... If I can somehow have mastery over this area of my life, then maybe I can look glorious to myself and to others. And Again, why? why? Why mastery over that particular area of your life? Let me give you an, a, an example of a false gospel that we preach and probably don't even realize it. <clears throat> when someone points out that we did something wrong, whether that be something that is sinful or just something that just practically was wrong. It is nothing sinful. It's all moral. What gospel does your response preach? Let me give you an example. We'll step on some toes. And you get upset, like you might be doing right now, Defensive, manipulative, what does it say? It says that the only way to live is in your own perfection and righteousness. That's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. Instead, the only gospel that should be coming out of our lives is the gospel that says, I am needy, and I'm the only one, I'm sorry, and the only one who is sufficient in my neediness is the Jesus of the cross. Like what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2. He says about how he came to them with Christ and Christ crucified. This is what Paul has just preached to us in the first seven verses of Ephesians. Is that God is the only Holy One. So why would we get defensive? That we were helpless and unholy. Okay, so I've failed here. If I understood the Gospel, then I would know this is just an example of my helplessness and my unholiness if it's a sin issue. But then God comes to save. So in some ways, this is God reaching out His arm to me of fixing my brokenness. See, again, if I understood the gospel, I wouldn't preach this gospel. I, well, I might be being too...
kind there, but too harsh there, I mean. We understood the gospel, loved the gospel, asked God to apply the gospel. Then, My goodness. We would see where, the, the, where it's not congruent in our lives. And we proclaim these other gospels. But you see, most of us, I think, grew up thinking this, that this gospel Paul's talking about demands that I not look like the evil people of the world. Therefore, I, should just, I just need to avoid all those terrible sins like alcohol, cussing, adultery, watching rated R movies when someone else is looking. But that's, that's wrong. That's not, the, that's not the gospel. This gospel demands that we simply not look like the evil people of the world, but that we, in verse 4 of chapter 1, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, this gospel leads to and demands that we should be holy and blameless before Him. When we stop comparing ourselves to the world, when we stop comparing ourselves to the goal, to that which will happen, and that is we will be presented as holy, and blameless. So it's this gospel that Paul says he is a minister of, and it's this gospel that we are ministers of, and we need to be careful that we're not being ministers of the wrong gospel. Second thing is that it's this gospel that we are ministers of. Emphasis now on the second half of the sentence. This mystery this gospel requires something of us. I like what Paul says, and Rusty talked about last week. You, when you read this, you perceive my insight. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You can perceive Paul's insights. What was he talking about? As Rusty reminded us last week, an alien without hope. All right? That's our first good insight. So back to the gospel of, of Ephesians 1, right? To be, he had to choose us to be holy and blameless. Why? Because we're not holy and blameless and we couldn't choose them ourselves. What's that mean? We were aliens without hope. Paul's just saying it in a different way later. But that's still the gospel. We're aliens without hope. But now you have everything. But now you have everything. So back to the false gospel. How do I respond when, I, when someone's pointed out something wrong? If, if I understand that, that I was an alien without hope, then my failure here might be dishonoring to God. And if so, I need to seek repentance and so on and so forth. But it's also a reminder of the state in which I was once hopeless and once an alien without any hope of the future. And because I see that, then I, I see that God is restoring me and He's bringing me into His likeness of His Son. So we can see our failures not as, not as things to get defensive of and preach the wrong gospel, but as opportunities of grace. Opportunities to seek God's goodness. I, just, I'm, I'm preaching to myself just as much as I am to anybody. You know, I, I don't have this plan to say this, but I'll say this a couple weeks, a week or so ago, I <coughs> was out from the home having a conversation with a gentleman. We were, started off as talking about deer scent, all right? It's deer season. We're talking about deer scent. 
That's deer pee, if you don't know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and that started, that, that began, that, that turned into a, honestly, into a gospel conversation, talking about, about ministry and church planting, and this gentleman has talked about wanting to be a part of church planting and stuff in the future, and, and I know him, I've known this guy for about 10 years, 12 years, something like that. And uh, so I have this good gospel conversation all while my, my wife was at home, pregnant, three boys, just going crazy, right? All of them, not just Sarah. So I get home, you know, and, and, and Sarah graciously points out my sin. She does. I, I needed you home. You was not supposed to take that long. What do I do? What do I do? Right? Oh, but it was gospel conversation, and you know, and that's what we need to be about. And and I just, I just got defensive. What was I saying? I was saying that that my righteousness in this moment is wrapped up in what I was doing. That my that that I, because I can claim some level of spirituality to my task, that it allowed me to forego my responsibilities at home. I was defensive. And what I was doing, I was preaching to my wife and to my kids the wrong gospel. I was preaching to them a gospel that, uh, that doesn't say, you know what, I did fail. And, uh, you know, thank you for being gracious to me and showing that to me. You know? Now, that's a hard pill to swallow, Right? But you know what, by God's grace, by, by God's grace, in time, I don't remember if it was minutes or, what, I, just, I just felt my heart, I, almost immediately, really, felt my heart just kind of go, oh, what have I done, right? What have I done? I'm preaching the wrong gospel to myself, and I'm preaching the wrong gospel to my family. I'm not a minister of that gospel. It's the gospel of the world. You know, and by God's grace, I said I was sorry. Right? I apologized. I repented. And then as God began to work on my heart, the next day, like, I was reflecting on the same situation, and, and God showed me something very specific that I needed to repent for from that same position, from that same conversation. And so the next day, like, I, I just felt led to confess of another, a particular area of that conversation. Not voiding what I'd already repented for, but bringing more clarity and more specifically, I want to repent for this. I need mercy for this. You see, this gospel requires something of us. Why? Because the only way my heart was able to, to do a switcheroo in there was because I had a different heart. I had a different identity. I was someone different. What came out there is not who Matt McBee is any longer. That's who Matt McBee used to be. But I'm not that person anymore. So uh, there's freedom in that, right? There's freedom to repent. There's freedom to ask for forgiveness. Why? First of all, because my righteousness isn't wrapped up in what I'm doing. And because as a new person with a new heart, I'm a minister of a new gospel. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ. That my salvation is wrapped up in Him. Not in my ability to be a lawyer with my wife. So this gospel requires something of us because it changes the very identity of who we are. If who or what we are is changed, then certain actions and fruit must come from this. This is what you see with Paul. He's gotten insights into these mysteries. He's gotten insights into this gospel. And what's happened is this change to Paul is that now he no longer is a minister of the Jewish law, if you will. He's now a minister of this gospel. So I want to encourage you, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ or not certain, I want to know what gospel do you proclaim to yourself and to others each and every day? What gospel are you saying to your family and to your others? Let me give you some examples. A false gospel would be that upon your own right doings that you will be in favor with God someday. That you can even be in favor with God now and somehow earn His right doing towards you. That's a false gospel, and you preach it to yourself every day. Or that if you can do just enough religious activity, then God will save you. This isn't the gospel. You can do nothing to earn your favor, God's favor of your life. So just like me in the situation with my wife, it, I could do nothing to earn God's favor in there except for repent and trust in Jesus' righteousness. Same thing for you. You must repent of thinking and trying to, to be glorious and be praiseworthy by the doings of your own gospel, which is, is doing all the right things so you can earn favor with God. It can't happen. But this gospel that Paul is a minister of says that if you place your faith in Jesus as the one who paid the price for your sins, that your unholiness can be wiped away because of His blood and your, His righteousness becomes yours. So look at verse 7 again. All of us. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. We'll get to those words in a few moments. So how do we be ministers of the gospel? What is Paul modeling here for us? What, what, is, what is Paul saying? I'm going to reach ahead just for a moment, even though we'll preach more thoroughly on this in a few weeks. But how do we be ministers of the gospel? It is this. Hear me very clearly. From the context, it is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now just as a side note, if you're going to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, that means you have to be diving into the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to all. The ministers are servants of the Word who proclaim and teach the Gospel in every way. I'll read to you 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians here is speaking more particularly to the, 
the, the sincerity of what's going on, that they're using God's Word and preaching God's Word for His glory, not for their own glory. I want to point out to you that they've been commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, that He has reconciled a people to Himself, and that you, Gentile, may be included. This is the Gospel we preach. And we do this as the Gospel renovates our whole being. As it changes our identity. As it comes to bear on every rhythm of our life. I want to give us, I want to kind of break from chapter 3 verse 7 for just a few moments. To give us three gospel identity implications. As we think about Paul, a minister of the gospel. Us, now a minister of this gospel. I want to give us three gospel identity implications. The first one is this. Ministers of the the gospel are learners of the gospel. Ministers of the gospel are learners of the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, Paul says. How was he made a minister of this gospel? He had to learn the gospel. God had to teach him the gospel. He had to learn the gospel. And I think Paul would be one of the first ones to tell us that that is an unsearchable, like the the riches of that. No, we know no end. And we can keep searching that and keep knowing that and knowing it more thoroughly. I want to remind you that as a young man, Jesus grew in both height and wisdom. He learned from local religious teachers, by living in community, and through regular times of listening to God. Jesus was a learner. And I think sometimes we think, well, Jesus kind of came to earth and He knew everything. No, the Bible says He grew in wisdom. He grew in knowledge. He grew, He learned. And so if we are in Christ, if our identity is in Christ, and Christ was a learner, we are a learner. And when we do not live as learners, particularly of God's words, then we are denying the new identity that we have in Jesus. I don't don't want to be overly harsh here, but when we are not seeking to learn the Scriptures just as our Savior sought to learn the Scriptures, what are we saying about ourselves compared to Jesus? But then what did Jesus do? Jesus called others to follow His ways, right? To be His disciples, since to live into obedience to all that God commands, right? The Great Commission. But He then sent these followers out to make these disciples. And we believe we are also called to be followers of Jesus who take responsibility for our own development and the development of others. The own discipleship of our own hearts and the discipleship of the people around us. This includes being personally formed by the truth of the gospel and regularly speaking the gospel to others so they can be rescued from sin and selfishness. That we all might grow up into maturity in Jesus Christ. We're really going to talk about that a lot in chapter 4. But just to give you a taste, in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for what? To continue listening? For the work of ministry. For the building up 
the body of Christ. Guys, the elder's role is to equip you for ministry. Your role is to do the heavy lifting. Our role is to equip you. Your role is to do the heavy lifting. So how are you seeking to learn? To be learners. Both in personal study as a part of the, of the, of the body. Second gospel identity implication. The ministers of the gospel are worshipers of the giver of the gospel. Ministers of the gospel are worshipers of the giver of the gospel. Again, just watch Paul's tone leading up to chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister of. Paul has been displaying for us this whole time what this worshiping of God looks like. Blessed be the God and Father. He starts off that way. But worship, as we've talked about, is marked by a couple key aspects. And I think that's what you see going on in Paul so far. Is that a worshiper is marked by spirit and truth in everything. Spirit and truth in everything. And clearly, as Paul has already taught us in Ephesians, that God is the only one to do the worship of our lives. And then as God, as we take this gospel, right, and we are redeemed, but then as this redemption takes more grip of every area of our lives, all of this stands as a monument to God's greatness as He transforms our lives into, what, Romans 12, living sacrifices. That all of our rhythms of life and the things we do line up more perfectly in progressive reality, this identity that we once were, or that we are now. That, that everything begins to line up more clearly and more accurately with who we are. Let's worship. Our lives begin to worship more. As we become more consistently these living sacrifices, we will worship both in spirit and in truth. There will be truth from God's revealed word that will guide us, and our spirits will unite with the Holy Spirit, bringing about an authentic, heartfelt, and mind-engaging worship of God that consumes all of our lives. That is an incredible statement. God's revealed word with the Spirit. Heartfelt, mind-engaging worship of God that consumes every aspect of our lives. You see, this is identity and rhythm. This is what it means to be a minister of the gospel. That both your mouth and your actions proclaim this gospel. That this gospel dictates everything and informs everything that we do. John 4.24, of course, the verse I'm referencing. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, worshiping in spirit with no truth will naturally become worship of self. And worshiping in truth with no spirit will become worship of self. We're ministers of the gospel. Third implication. Ministers of the gospel are servants of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying here. But he's a servant of the gospel. He's a minister of the gospel. He's a servant of the gospel. Certainly we see this in Christ, right? Fully God, fully human. What's he do? Jesus takes on the posture of a servant. 
He gave His life even unto death. Jesus gave His life as a servant unto death so that others could experience salvation, peace, restoration. Jesus even said, right, I am among you as the one who serves. That's what Paul is saying. I'm a minister of this gospel. All those who follow Jesus are called to serve in the same humility. Joyfully submitting to Jesus as Lord, to the leaders He's placed over us, and to each other as we serve whomever God brings into our lives. And in light of what we're talking about today in this passage, we are first and foremost servers of the gospel. That if we're not serving up the gospel, what are we serving up? Because if we're not careful, we serve up hope in something else. First Peter 2.16 Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So there's a, what's Peter doing here? There's a connection between serving God and being free. We are most free when we are living as servants of God, but you are most in slavery when you're using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. This is reminiscent of Paul's I'm a prisoner of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1. All right, so what we just kind of work through very quickly, this is just some simple implications of what it means to be a minister of the gospel. But I want to go a step forward in this verse because we've got to keep a couple things in perspective, okay? We've been hitting real hard this. We're ministers of the gospel. We're ministers of the gospel. Now let's see what Paul has to say at the last part of this verse. So of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of, this, of His power. So being transformed into a minister of the gospel is a gift of God's grace. You see, all of us are so bent towards earning our own way into heaven, earning our own standing before God, that if we just take what I just talked about, that we will live out who we are in Jesus and live out each day, all of us would walk away going, okay, yeah, I'm going to be a minister of this gospel. And I'm, going to be, I'm going to go proclaim this gospel. And, and, and what we end up doing is we just end up becoming a bunch of Pharisees or, who are actually in the process preaching the wrong gospel as we're trying to earn favor with God by preaching the gospel. That's not the gospel. What's Paul say here? The mindset in which he is a minister of the gospel is because of this gift. This mindset is focused on that I'm a minister because of the gift of God's grace. What's he saying? That I am needy in administering the gospel. That I'm a broken person that has been restored by the gospel, the very gospel that I'm preaching to you. And what you see is the theme of divine grace is once again come front and center here by Paul. Just a few sub-notes here. It's a gift to be a minister of the gospel. Like church, look at me. Do you believe it's a gift to be a minister of the gospel? Like is that a gift? Yeah, it's a gift. Paul says it's a gift. 
What's Paul saying? He's, Paul's saying it's not his doing. Just like I said in chapter 1, verse 4, it's not our choosing, it's God's choosing. We're not ministers of the gospel by our choosing either, just like we weren't saved by our choosing either. First and foremost, by God's choosing, which would bring about our choosing. Same thing here. It's God's grace that brings about us to be ministers of the gospel. Solely the gracious, sovereign intervention of God that would bring us to be ministers of the gospel. This is not something we can earn. Paul was incredibly conscious of his own unworthiness. That's what Paul's proclaiming here yet again. That I'm unworthy of this gospel. That he had been, Paul had been an opponent of the Lord Jesus. And he points out this deeply held truth. He points out this this truth that he he holds, that he is unworthy, but it's God's grace that has made him this by doing two things. He indicated that he was made a servant of the gospel by God. And then he heaps on top of that these expressions of for grace and power. That God made me this by his grace and his power. What's Paul saying? I wouldn't have done it on my own. I couldn't have done it on my own. So it's a gift to be a minister of the gospel. And I want to say a gift also implies goodness. A gift implies goodness. Like like it is a good thing to be a minister of the gospel. Paul viewed this gift of being a minister of the gospel as the highest honor. And that would be my question for you. Do you view being a minister of the gospel your highest honor? Do you? Does it show in ministering the gospel to your family? Does it show that you hold it in highest honor as you minister the gospel, this gospel, to your neighbor, to your own heart when you sin? I mean, many of us have little to no joy because we're not ministers of the real gospel. We're ministers of the real gospel. We're being ministers of something that's good. I can just imagine, church, let me think about Paul here. Paul talks about, if you could perceive my insights into this mystery. I mean, think about what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, I, and he goes on to say, I'm a minister of this gospel. Like, I just give you just a personal testament. Um, being a minister of the gospel is hard. It's hard. There's brokenness. Things you can't fix. Do you have to trust God with? Sometimes people don't want to hear it. Sometimes people just, nah, I don't, nah, I'm good. But I can tell you that the joy of being a minister of the gospel, if, if for any reason, because of the insights into the gospel that God gives his ministers, those are worth it. Those are worth it. To have insights into the unsearchable riches of God's grace that, that, that many people may not come to, to grasp, it's awesome. 
That's awesome. Why? What? It's not because, I, again, what did I just say? It's not because I'm special. It's not because I'm awesome. It's not because I went to seminary. It's not because of these things. It's because, like Paul, according to the gift of God's grace. Why? So that he can be a minister of this gospel. I, I tell you what, start being a minister of the gospel more and more, and God will give you greater insights into his mystery. He will. And you know what? You will find yourself more satisfied, more joyful. Paul also says it's by the working of his power. By the working of his power, nothing, hear me church, nothing short of the power of God could transform a Christian persecutor into a Christian minister. And although, to my knowledge, none of us in this room were killing Christians prior to being saved, we were still persecutors of the Christian faith. We still proclaimed the wrong gospel with every breath that came out of our mouth. And it took nothing short of the power of God to transform you and myself into a minister of the gospel. Now, it took a power to accomplish this commissioning. But Paul has in mind more than just power and grace for the day of commissioning, giving us this task, making us minister of the gospel. But he has in mind grace and power for the ongoing ministering of the gospel as God's people live out their identity and in everything we do, proclaiming the good news. And we have this power too. Amen? Do you believe that? Now, and, and some closing thoughts here. I know this like crazy difficult task we're talking about here. We're talking about talking about transforming everything. Like, and we live in such a way that a lot of times we don't like change. We we like the comfort that we've created around us. And but as ministers of the gospel, we want to see the gospel renovate. Everything, everything we do, our families, the way we talk, the way we think, the way we sleep, the way we eat, the way we bless, the way we work, the way we communicate. And we want to see the unsearchable riches of Christ be sought after and believed and loved by everyone around us. How is this going to happen? I would argue is. Just as Paul, I think, is making this argument that this is going to happen as the gospel changes us. That's what Paul just said. I'm a minister of this gospel by what? By the grace and power of God. What does he mean by the grace and power of God? He's saying that because God has renovated everything, or is renovating everything in my life, I am now a minister of the gospel. And as each of us begin proclaiming more clearly with our mouths and with our actions the true gospel of Jesus Christ, we're being ministers of this gospel. So I would encourage us to do this, church. Let us look to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has done this perfectly. Who has done this perfectly. And who will do this in us as He has promised. I praise God for His faithfulness, right? 
Praise God for His goodness, for His faithfulness. As we are the church, and God is revealing His manifold wisdom through us. Amen? Amen? Let's try it again. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for, for Your goodness in making us ministers of the gospel. Father, I pray that that we would not begin today with, okay, what can I do to make this part of my life line up with this part of my, with what I believe, and what can I do to, to make this line up with what I believe here, and Father, help, help us not to begin there. Help us begin with, by your grace. Help us begin with, Father, we need your grace. We cannot do this without you. Father, help me. Now give me guidance. Help us to proclaim the right gospel, this gospel, that our Savior, Jesus Christ, died on the cross to set us free so that we might be your servants, Father, and that we would hold being proclaimers of the gospel of highest honor. Father, I thank you. I pray that you would give us the grace to do such things. Father, I give you praise. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.